This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Religious Refugees, Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Healing. Have you been questioning your faith and spiritual beliefs while leaving the familiarity of your religious homeland? Have you been negatively affected by toxic religion, knowing in your heart of hearts there must be a more liberating spiritual way? Have you experienced loneliness, isolation, and fear of rejection from religious others just because you are a more inclusive, creative, and expansive person? Join the legion of others on the road to healing and self-discovery and let Dr. Mark Karras's book, Religious Refugees, be your guide. Hey, this is Kevin Max, you know, the singer. And uh, if you love Jesus and stimulating theology... You're going to love this episode of Second Cup with Keith. Hello, and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles. And in this episode, I want to talk about worm theology. What is worm theology? Well, worm theology is um, something you might be familiar with. I grew up with this idea of worm theology my whole life. Um, it's reinforced in the pulpit, in our sermons, uh, even in the hymns we sing and the worship songs we uh, we share together when we come together in church and worship. Um, and these are the kinds of things that reinforce the notion that we are worms and wretches, that we're undeserving of the love of God or the mercy of God. Um, you know, and so whether it's conversations that we're having with people or just the way things are phrased, um, when we're talking about the love of God, we're always having to hear someone or we ourselves are inserting the idea that yes, God loves us, but we don't deserve it. Or God is, uh, God's love is so great and God's mercy and grace are so wonderful in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. And this whole idea that we don't deserve it and that we are, um, even worms or wretches or worthless, uh, people really goes against the grain of everything that we see Jesus is all about, the gospel is all about, and what we see, uh, communicated in the, in the, uh, New Testament scriptures about who God is and how God thinks of us and who we are um, because of that. And I think it's really important to correct this because otherwise we walk around not only feeling like we're worthless and we're worms and wretches and there's nothing good in us, um, we kind of think that that's how God thinks of us as well. And both of those things are false. And I really think it's important for us to get this straight in our heads, to not allow ourselves to continue to repeat these kinds of phrases to ourselves, to not have this kind of inner dialogue, um, not to say to ourselves, you know, to think of ourselves as being wretched and worthless and undeserving of God's love, um, but also not to put those thoughts and those words into the mouth of God. So um, one thing that I've noticed, and I did this actually several years ago, where I actually did a study. Um, where I looked at different passages in the Bible that speak about the love of God. And, you know, even Old Testament passages um, are pretty breathtaking when it comes to this notion of how much God loves us. Um, there are passages in the Old Testament, for example, that talk about how God's love is so great for us that God rejoices over us with singing. I just love that. Um, the idea is that God's love endures forever, or that we have been loved with an everlasting love. I mean, it's really wonderful. And then, of course, you get to the New Testament, and the idea of the love of God is even more uh, emphasized and pronounced and obvious, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that 
uh, we might be saved and forgiven and healed and restored and transformed and made in the image of Christ and all these wonderful things. Um, specifically, the passages in the, in the New Testament about love are really beautiful. And I, there's three sort of main places that I want to look at, um, that talk about the love of God. And I want, and I want to talk about them, but I want to then point something out about them. Okay. Um, so there's a place we all know, 1 Corinthians 13, right? This is the famous love chapter. It gets read at weddings and sometimes at funerals. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this beautiful chapter that Paul wrote in uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians in chapter 13 about the love of God. And, um, it says these beautiful things, right? About, uh, about love, that love is patient, love is kind, that love keeps no record of wrongs and things like that. And it's really wonderful, really beautiful, an entire chapter focused on love. And this specifically, of course, we know um, that it's God. It's God's love um, that we're talking about, that we would receive, and we would also then practice and share amongst ourselves and with other people. And then there's also a passage in Romans um, chapter 8 that talks about how, um, you know, how great is the love of God and that Nothing will ever uh, separate us from love of God, not death, uh, not life, not angels, not demons, not the future, not the past, that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you and I from from the love of God. Um, and then, of course, you know, you've got passages uh, like in First John that say things like God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. Um and, you know, th- there's more than that, but I just want to focus on on a handful here. And um, well, then, of course, I can't leave out Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul talks about, um, he, he's praying for the church in Ephesus, and he says he prays that they would have the power just to even grasp how high and wide and long and deep is the love of God for them in Christ Jesus. He then goes on to say that this love is so marvelous, so phenomenal, so exceptional, so even um, beyond comprehension. He says that it transcends knowledge. I love that because what he's I, I, when I read that, I think what he's saying is, you know what, if you were somehow to have um, all of the knowledge in the universe, what Paul is saying is that wouldn't even be enough. That wouldn't be enough for you to even begin to comprehend how great is the love of God for you. So when we see these kinds of passages, right, going on and on about how great is God's love, how high and wide and long and deep it is, how nothing will ever separate us from this love of God, how God himself is love, and um, and these kinds of beautiful, beautiful passages in the scriptures, you know what we notice, what you and I should notice, is that not once, is any of that ever followed with a verse that says, but you don't deserve it? Not once. No. So what, what God wants us to understand, what the Spirit of Christ is saying through the New Testament prophets and scriptures, is affirming to us over and over and over again, you are loved, you are loved, you are loved. You are God's beloved. You are loved with an everlasting love. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. It is higher. It is wider. It is longer and deeper than you could ever imagine. And it even transcends 
knowledge. It goes beyond the, what the human mind can even comprehend. And that this love of God, as great as it is, as wonderful as it is, as amazing as it is, as endless as it is, that nothing could ever separate you from it, not even death. No, nothing can separate you from this amazing love of God. And yet, it never ever says you don't deserve it. Never. Again, we insert that. We've been programmed, really. Again, from the pulpit, from sermons, from Sunday school lessons, from even the hymns that we sing, right? Um, that we're wretches, we're worms, we're undeserving. But again, those are not God's words to us. That is not ever God's posture towards any of us. God never says, I love you, but you don't deserve it. No, of course not. And listen, uh, if you're a parent, you can understand this. I, I have two wonderful uh, boys, and um, now they're grown now. They're in their 20s and graduated from college and all that. But, um, you know, I can remember when they were little, you know, just even when they were babies and just being so overwhelmed with love for them and even thinking at the time and really feeling like the Spirit of God spoke to my heart in some of those times and said, Keith, that's how I love you with this just unbelievable, inexplicable love that just seems to come out of nowhere, right? I don't know why, but I just love my kids so much. And the more I know them, and the more I got to know them as they were growing up and went from being babies to toddlers to, to you know, young men and teenagers and adults, um, I've just learned to love them more and more and more and more. And now, you know, I can never, I would never, ever, you know, sit down in front of either of my boys and say to them, you know what, I love you so much. I love you more than I can even say. I love you more than you could even comprehend. I love you so much, you know, that it's impossible to even, you know, contain it. Oh, but by the way, you don't deserve it. No, of course not. Why would I do that? And listen, I want to let you in on a little secret. Um, I, I do not love my kids more than God does. And I'm not a better parent than God is. That's ridiculous. Of course not. God is a much better parent than I am. God is a much, much greater lover than I am um, of people, even of my own children. God loves my kids more than I do. Um, he loves me more than I can imagine and everyone else. And so if I, um, in my limitations, would never say to my children, I love you so much, but you don't deserve it. Well, of course, God would never say that to me either. Of course not. So this concept that we don't deserve the love of God, it's artificial. It's not real. And it's something that, frankly, I think the reason it makes me so angry when I hear Christians thinking this way and talking this way is, first of all, to realize, well, they didn't get that from God. They, they're not hearing that from the Spirit of Christ. Because the Spirit of the Abba Father who loves them, um, the Spirit of Christ who who gave himself up for all of us, um, who is not the source of this idea that we are wretches and worms and unworthy of the love of God. That's ridiculous. So that's one reason it makes me angry. And, and I guess the second reason it makes me angry is I realize where it does come from. It comes from people who are projecting their own feelings of inadequacy and um, unworthiness uh, again, it, this comes from some artificial religious place where, again, we we have picked up this bad habit, and we could probably trace it, you know, that there have been some 
uh, early church fathers, people like St. Augustine or John Calvin or Martin Luther, um, who were kind of hung up on themselves as wretched, worthless sinners. And in a lot of their writings, they emphasize this, with that's, of course, crept into their theology. That theology got spread out and continued and, and shared forward all the way to the present day. And um, it's this sort of this religious idea that um, the best way to magnify the incredible love of God um, is by sort of um, minimizing uh, us and humanity, right? That in some way, well, the, the best way to make the love of God greater would be to make us worse. Um, uh, and so, but that's, again, that's not the way Jesus talks. That's not the way Paul speaks. Um, this is not the way the New Testament talks about us, right? What we see is like in First John, it says, you know, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. I love that because, you know, most of us want to just stop after the first part, right? The idea that, you know, how great is this love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. Now, if you stopped right there, Wow, how great is this love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. Well, if you just stop there and your worm theology training programming kicks in, then what you're going to do is fill in the, the, the silence there, fill in the blanks there and say, well, the love of God that's lavished upon us is so great that we of all people should be the children of God. Well, it's because we don't deserve to be called the children of God, right? That's why it makes it so great. Um, but but that's not the end of that verse. The verse goes on to say, and that is who we are. So when God lavishes this love upon us and calls us the children of God, it's not because we're not. It's not because we don't deserve to be called the children of God. No. <laughs> what it says in First John is that God has lavished his amazing love upon us and called us the children of God. And that is who we are. We are the children of God. And that's why he calls us the children of God. And that's why God loves us. God loves us because really, God is love, right? That's also what it says in First John. So of course God loves because that is who God is. God can't not love, uh, you know, because God is love. And so God's love for us is automatic, but it's not, um, again, it's not this idea that we don't deserve it. We are loved because God is love, but let's put it this way. Um, we know from Genesis the idea that God created um, mankind in God's own image, right? So we are made, humanity, every one of us, every human being, doesn't matter who you are, if you are a human, if you're a human being, you bear the image of God. You and I and everyone are created in the image of God. Now, of course, we know that's not the physical image. God doesn't have a head and two legs and two arms and two ears and a mouth and a nose. No, that's not this anthropomorphic idea of image of God is not what it means. Um, it doesn't mean that because we know why God is a spirit. So that doesn't that's not what it means when it says uh, men and women were made in the image of God. Um, it's more in the sense of um, the nature of God, right? So 
we know again that God is love. And so if God, who is love, made humans in God's own image, and if that image is love, you and I are made in the image of love. So we were created by love to be in the image of love, and we are loved by love, and we ourselves are not only loved, we are love also, because we are made in the image of love and the love of God. So it may take some meditating and thinking it through, but this is the reality. This is what we see from the scriptures. Now, I do know, and I hear it all the time, um, well, Keith, there are verses that sort of suggest this idea um, that humans are wretched and worms and undeserving of the love of God. Well, um, we can look at some of those. Quite frankly, most of the time, those verses are used either um, as part of um, maybe a human being feels that way in the moment, right? Uh, we do have some verses, even in the Psalms and some of the Old Testament passages, um, and uh, even once, right, where I think Paul says something about, you know, a wretched man that I am, uh, who can save me from this state I'm in. But of course, he then finishes the thought and answers his own question by saying, um, well, but thanks to God uh, for Christ and for the love of Christ. So that's the answer to that rhetorical question, is that um, we don't remain in that state. That is not who we are. We might feel that way. Now, absolutely, sometimes we all feel like garbage. We don't feel like uh, we're loved, but it doesn't change the fact that we are. Now, there are also some some passages I need to address, and I've touched on this a little bit in some of the past episodes. Um, again, our English translations of the scriptures are kind of not always very helpful, uh, because a lot of our English translations have words that are taken out, or things that were changed, things that were put in there that didn't belong in there. Um, and one of these places um, is one of the verses that's used quite often for worm theology. That's Jeremiah 17, 9. Um, and it's this idea that uh, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And so, again, that I hear people quoting that quite often when they're speaking in these sort of worm theology terms. Um, and they'll say that, you know, there's nothing good in me or the heart is deceitful above all things. We cannot trust it. So that also teaches us not to trust ourselves, our own ability to hear God, to know God, even though that in itself is a contradiction of Scripture. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. I'm the good shepherd, and they they know my voice. They hear my voice. There's nothing that prevents you and I from hearing the voice of, of Christ or the good shepherd, not according to Jesus. And um, so and this is another reason why this is this worm theology is so deceptive and so um, destructive. So, um, yeah, in your English Bible, Jeremiah 17.9, yeah, if you turn there, most likely you're using the Masoretic text, which is 99% of most evangelical uh, translations. Um, the heart is deceitful above all things uh, and beyond cure, and who can understand it? But did you know, uh, if, I, if you haven't heard me talk about this before, I need to talk about it now. Um, the Masoretic text, which again, most English translations have of the Old Testament, um, showed up about 400 years after Jesus. So what were Jewish people reading when they read the New Testament before there was a Masoretic text? Well, we know that Jesus, yes, Jesus and Paul the Apostle, uh, were reading from what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint 
was in print, in, in publication. It was around at the time of Jesus in the first century, um, before that actually, but it was widely read, uh, translation, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And we know that because whenever Jesus quotes scripture in the gospels, uh, it matches up exactly with what we read in the Septuagint version. And the same with, uh, with the apostle Paul. When the apostle Paul quotes an Old Testament passage, um, it aligns with the Septuagint translation not with the Masoretic text. And if you've ever done a comparison uh, in your uh, English Bible, like where it, it would places where Jesus would quote from Isaiah, Jeremiah, or something like that from the Old Testament, or, or Paul would do the same. If you flip back over and read the same text, uh, you know, cross-referenced, uh, and read it, what it says in your English uh, translation of the Old Testament, again, which is the Masoretic, you'll notice they don't line up a lot of times, that they don't line up. And uh, this is one of those situations where not only does it not line up, it is radically different, radically different. Um, so actually, what it says in the Septuagint again, this is the version that was that it, that was around that Jesus read and quoted from, that Paul the Apostle read and quoted from, and it's four hundred years younger than the translation that you and I have in our English Bibles. And in the Septuagint, it reads this way: the heart is deep beyond all things, and it is the man, even so, who can know him. Now, look at that. There is nothing deceitful there. (laughs) There's nothing wormy or wretched or untrustworthy. No, Uh, the Septuagint version, again, the version that Jesus and Paul actually read and quoted from says the heart is deep beyond all things. And uh, that's different. And you know, this kinds of that kind of worm theology actually creeps in to a lot of the shifts and the changes that were made in the uh, in the Old Testament passages between the Septuagint, which is the older version, and the uh, newer version, which was the Masoretic. For example, one famous one, Isaiah fifty three ten, in the Masoretic, and that would be in the Bible you and I typically read from uh, today, says that yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. And to cause him, that's the Messiah, to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sins, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now that verse right there, uh, Isaiah 53.10, quite often used uh, to teach this idea that God was pleased to um, see Jesus crucified on a cross. That that was God loved it. It was God's plan. God God thought it was great. And God, God it was God's will to crush uh, Jesus on the cross. Well, the Septuagint, again, um, of that same passage says this, and the Lord is willing to cleanse him of the injury or to heal him of the injury if you make a sin offering. Not that God does, but that we might. So in other words, if we take Jesus and and nail him to a cross and treat him as if he is a uh, an offering for sin, what God will do is heal him of that injury. That's really, really different. Um, similar Isaiah 53, 4 uh, in the Masoretic that changed the updated edited version that we have says uh, this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But that's not what the Septuagint says. The Septuagint says this, This one carries our sins and suffers pain for us, and we regarded him as one who is in difficulty, misfortune, and affliction. 
Look at that. No mention of God in there at all. God doesn't do anything in there. God is not the one punishing him. We're the ones who are doing this to him. Um, and just real quick, while we're on the topic, there's also Exodus 15, 3. The Masoretic uh, says the Lord is a warrior. But uh, in the Septuagint, the older version, the more original version, says that the Lord shatters war. Yes, the difference between God being a warrior who fights violently uh, and and God being one who hates war and destroys war. Yeah, big, big difference, isn't it? Um, by the way, if you're curious, people ask me this all the time when I point this out, the differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic. There is, um, Thomas Nelson has a uh, uh, translation of the Old Testament. It's, the, it's called the Orthodox Study Bible. And um, pick that up if you'd like to read the Old Testament in the Septuagint. Uh, it's much, much better. But anyway, uh, getting back to our point, um, this worm theology is not Christian theology. It's not Christ-like theology. Now, unfortunately, it has become, quote-unquote, Christian theology um, because, again, we have just allowed it to permeate our songs. We have allowed it to permeate our talking, talking and thinking, even our self-internal dialogue. Um, it's just become part of Christian culture in the West, in America, specifically. Um, but it's not something that is supported really by what the scriptures say. What, what the scriptures want us to know is simply this. God is love, and God's love for you is greater than you can imagine, and nothing will ever end it or stop it. It's infinite. It is an endless ocean that is higher, wider, and longer, and deeper than you can imagine, and it will never, ever end, and you will, you and I will never ever be separated from that incredible, amazing love of God. Ever. Nothing. And it never says, you and I don't deserve it. It never calls us worms and wretches. In other words, God doesn't think about you that way. God is not, God is not disgusted with you. God is not disappointed with you. Any more than any loving parent could look at the child that they love, who looks like them, who's made in their image, and, and feel that way about them. Not a good parent, anyway. Now, sure, yeah, there's some parents that are awful, and they treat, treat their children, you know, like garbage. But God doesn't do that. That's not who God is. God is a loving father. This is the beautiful thing about the prodigal son story. When Jesus gives us this beautiful gift of telling us the story of the prodigal son, He's giving us the best possible picture we can have of, of, of God as a, a loving parent, a loving father who doesn't um, yell at his son or his child when they want to walk away, um, who doesn't, when they return, who doesn't say, I told you so, who doesn't, um, who doesn't, you know, play these games with them or withhold love from them at all. No, what we see is a God who is full of grace, full of mercy, has nothing but forgiveness, nothing but love for, uh, for his children. No matter what they've done, nothing, nothing could ever change God's love for you and I. So this word theology is something that I, I've begun to move away from, as I have with almost any theology that, uh, is sort of based on things like fear or shame, or guilt. Really, those are the three red flags. 
um, that we should watch out for. Whenever we hear a sermon on a Sunday morning or anywhere we're listening to somebody preach or teach or do a Bible study, anytime we're singing a worship song and we come across this this idea that um, the love of God is so wonderful and great and beautiful and incredible and amazing, but you don't deserve it, you filthy, sinner, worm, wretch. Uh, you know, anytime we hear those kinds of things, our antenna should go up. We should say, hold on a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where, where are you even getting that from? Where do you come up with the idea that God, God looks at us that way, thinks of us that way? It's not from God. God never says, you wretches, you worms, you filthy sinners. No, no, no. No, that's what the Pharisees did, right? We know that the Pharisees thought about people that way which is the reason why they couldn't understand. They were so perplexed by how Jesus, who's supposed to be this great teacher of the law, this great rabbi, this this great spokesperson for, for their God, how could he hang out with sinners? How, how could it be that he would rather, you know, be around and spend his time with drunkards and prostitutes and tax collectors, even people that were you know, um, blind or lame or had leprosy. Because again, in that culture, if you were sick, if you were born blind or if you were lame, if you had leprosy, if you had some sickness, you know, they equated that with sin. And so, you know, Jesus hanging around with those kinds of people all the time didn't make any sense to them, right? Their idea is that, you know, God is too good for that. God, God can't be around those filthy sinners. And so Jesus what are you doing hanging around sinners? You're not doing what God does. God doesn't want those people around him. God only wants the clean and the and the righteous and the good. And so, you know, Jesus corrects that misunderstanding, which by the way, it's something that we've we've picked up on it now today. We've we've gone right back to embracing exactly what the Pharisees believed and taught, right? This idea that God is too holy to be near these filthy sinners. And, um, and this is who God is, and this is what God is like. And Jesus contradicts that. He contradicts it primarily by his actions, right? He's, he's not separating himself from quote unquote sinners, whether they be people who supposedly either they or their parents must have sinned that they were born with some deformity or some sickness or some disease, um, or that they were just just flat out sinners, prostitutes, drunkards, tax collectors, you know, thieves, murderers. Yeah, all those kind of people. Um, Jesus contradicts that. He says, no, 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 no. These are the people God loves the most. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to see how Jesus corrects that misunderstanding that the Pharisees have. And frankly, it should correct us in our thinking, right? We should, we should take that lesson that Jesus gives to the Pharisees about, no, no, no. Let me tell you, what God's holiness is like and how the holiness of God is really expressed. The holiness of God isn't expressed by how he separates himself from quote-unquote sinners. No, no, no. He says, if you want to be like God, if you want to be like your Father in heaven, you should love everyone, even sinners, even people who hate you and who do violence to you, people that don't, people that want to do you harm. No, no, no. Your, your posture to even those people should be absolutely nothing but incredible grace and mercy and love. Why? Well, because if you do that, you'll be doing what God does, because God brings rain on the just and on the unjust. That's what God does. God blesses people whether they love him or they hate him. And so, and after he gives that teaching, 
Then Jesus drops that bomb. He says, so be holy the way God is holy. Not the way you think God is holy. Not the way you have been taught that God is holy. No, that's not, that's not real. That is not what God's holiness looks like. Jesus says God's holiness looks like this. Hanging around with sinners, blessing them, blessing those who curse you, doing good to those even who hate you. That's how the holiness of God is expressed. And so, yeah, we just see this complete turnaround, this complete um, uh, about face, really, uh, of the ways that we typically think of this idea of the love of God in as it's expressed by Jesus, as 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 expressed by the Apostle Paul and the, and the New Testament authors, compared to somehow the way we have lost it today, we have just gone right back to a pre-Christian way of thinking about who God is and who we are. God is good and holy. We are worthless and wretched, and we don't deserve anything God gives us. But that is not at all what the gospel is all about. What the gospel tells us is that God loves the world. That God, God's love is bigger than you imagine. God's grace is wider than you could comprehend, and it will never end, and nothing will ever, ever, ever separate you and I from this amazing love of God. So I hope that's helpful, and I encourage you not to buy into this idea of worm theology. And now that I've hopefully put some attention on it, your uh, your radar will be up the next time you're singing a worship song and you detect some little bit of wretchedness, worminess, I don't deserve itness uh, in those worship songs or in those hymns, or when you hear it coming from the pulpit, the idea that uh, we don't deserve God's love and those kinds of things. You know what? Just shake your head. Say, nope, that isn't true. That's not what the scriptures ever say. What the scriptures affirm is that we are loved, that God is love, that we are the children of God. That is who we are. And God's love is lavished upon us because of who we are and of who God is. I hope that's helpful. And again, thank you for listening to Second Cup with Keith. I really love doing these uh, episodes with you. Um, if you enjoy them, let me know. You know, if you're using the Ethos Radio app uh, on your phone, um, there's a place there for you to leave a little voice kind of message, voice memo, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know if you enjoy these episodes. If you have ideas for upcoming episodes, you'd like me to talk about a particular topic, um, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. And um, yeah, and by the way, if you're not using the Ethos Radio app to listen to these podcasts, uh, when I say plural podcast, I mean this one, Second Cup with Keith, and also the Threads podcast, which are both on the Ethos Radio network, um, then I encourage you, you know, on your phone, whether it's an Android or uh, an iPhone, um, go to your app store, uh, search Ethos Radio. You'll see the little app there. It's free. Download that. And you will get instant access every time a new episode of either Second Cup with Keith or Threads, uh, you know, comes out. And you'll also be able to use that function to let me know what you think uh, using the voice uh, memo thing feature that's available there on the app. And again, uh, I've enjoyed having this time with you. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk again soon. God bless.